0: Awesome. Today, um, I would like everyone to pull out your notes. You have notes in your chair. If you need notes, our ushers will. If you don't trust your husband to take complete notes, go and get your own. Um, If you need notes, wave your hand. Our ushers will make sure and get a copy to you. I do want to say I'm not going to be able to finish today's sermon, Okay. this is going to be, as I learned, the last service of, of part one of two, apparently. Everybody take out your notes and your pen. I want you to wave it in the air. Wave this pen and notes or your phone, whatever it is that you're using. It's, it's really critical, I can't stress this enough, that you take notes today. Because what I'm doing is laying the foundation for coming back in two weeks, not next week. You have to wait two weeks for the closing of the sermon. It's going to be worth the wait. The favorite part, my favorite part of the sermon is, is in two weeks. But I, I have to lay this foundation for you today. And so I need you to take notes, put it in your Bible, put it in your phone, put it in your pocket, bring it back in two weeks whenever I wrap the sermon up. Next week, I've already got plans uh, for the sermon next week. Uh, so it's going to take a couple weeks for us to wade through this, but it's a good sermon. And I want want to equip you as best that I can. Today we start a series called How to Be the Perfect Christian. How to be the perfect Christian. I'm taking some information from the Babylon Bee. How many of you have heard of the Babylon Bee? Maybe you've shared stories from them online thinking it was real and it wasn't real. It's satire. Satire means it's a joke. Relax, chill out. Um, So they make fun of everybody. No one is exempt from getting made fun of by the Onion or the uh, Babylon Bee. But I do want to talk about something that they talked about in 2018. So last year, there was this uh, concept written, and it was about being a perfect Christian, how to be a perfect Christian, your comprehensive guide to flawless spiritual living. However, you and I both know there's no such thing as a perfect Christian. Can I get an amen amen from somebody who has proved that to be the case? There is no such thing as a perfect Christian. We are all flawed human beings. But because of Jesus' death, burial, resurrection, you and I can receive forgiveness of our sins. That's what we celebrated last week on Easter Sunday, the fact that he took on the weight of our sin. And he conquered death, hell, and the grave. And because of that, because he was victorious, you and I can be victorious in this life, not just the life to come. In this life, you and I can be victorious. And so I want to talk to you about what the perfect Christian looks like. Keep in mind, this is satire. So when you hear the first point, don't text or don't, don't tweet, Pastor said, da-da-da-da-da-da-da. It's satire. Okay, you're going to get me run out of town if people believe that I really believe the statement that I'm going to make to you. I want to take you to Galatians chapter 6. In the book of Galatians, uh, Paul is writing to the Christians in Galatia. If you were or I were to summarize the book of Galatians, it would be something like a nutrition label. In other words, um, what is in this thing called Christianity? What is, What's the additives? What's the preservatives? What's not needed? What's the extraneous stuff thrown into the mix? And so... Um, I want to really help you and I understand what Christianity is at its very core today. So if last week you received Jesus Christ, I know that we have a few people in this service that received Jesus last week. This is a great day to get your feet wet in understanding Christianity and this thing we call doing life with Jesus. This past week, I was in the grocery store. And over the last, last four weeks or so... Um, I've, I've changed my eating quite a bit, significantly, enough that my wife is proud of me. Let's leave it at that. I'm not eating pork. I'm not eating red meat. I'm not eating shellfish. I'm only, if I eat fish, it's only wild-caught cod. I don't eat dark chicken, only white chicken, and I don't actually even like chicken, um, unless it's fried. <laughs> I like fried chicken, but I, <laughs> alas, I'm not eating fried foods. Um... I'm not eating sugar, I'm not eating carbs, I'm not eating dairy. What am I eating? Air, air, my grocery bill is super low. Yeah, so the the sugar and the carbs, that's, I'm eating as low as possible, but obviously there's some getting in there, but I'm doing well, doing quite well. I I called Carrie this week, I was at HEB in Round Rock and I was needing some probiotics. I'm trying to clean my gut a bit and, I saw this probiotics. It was a liquid form and it was mango flavored. And I thought, oh, oh, oh man. So I took it and I really needed some. I was feeling it. You know how you ever get that feeling? You're like, man, I really need some probiotics in my gut. That's how I was feeling. And so I, I took that thing and I opened it up and I just chugged it. And it was, y'all, delicious. It was non-dairy, but it tasted like a shake. And I took a picture of it and I sent it to Carrie. I'm like, oh my God, I'm gonna buy you one. It's It's like $3 for this little bitty thing, but so worth it. And she texts back how much sugar is in it. So I look on the back, and I realized all of a sudden why it tastes so good. (laughs) Lots of probiotics and lots of sugar. So I was kind of bummed about that. And then yesterday, you know, I'm, I'm doing well. I went for a hike yesterday, swam in the pool for a bit with the family. And, you know, when you swim, you get hungry. So... I went and I got some guacamole, because that's, that's heaven's food right there, guacamole. And I've got guacamole, and I, but I don't eat chips anymore, so I don't know what I'm going to do with that. So I figured um, I found this one, one option that I know a lot of keto people use. it. It's like low carb, I think. And so I'm eating it, and Carrie all of a sudden says, but doesn't that have pork? And I'm like, are you kidding me? No, there's no pork? So I look at the back and I'm reading the nutrition label to see if there's any pork in it. I'm like, it doesn't say pork. And I turn it over and it says pork rinds. (laughs) Sometimes you miss what's on the inside, not because of the fine print on the nutrition label, but you're not even looking at the big label on the front of the package. And today I want to help you and I come to grips with Christianity and understand what should be in there and what's hidden in the fine print. Heavenly Father, I come before you today. I thank you so much for who you are and what you're doing in our life. I thank you, God, for this sermon that has been bubbling up in my spirit. And God, you've been teaching me some new things, new ways to live, new ways to walk, new, new ways to walk in freedom. And God, I just ask that you would help me to articulate as best that I can and where, God, my, my valiant effort leaves off that your Holy Spirit will take over. God, that there would be something said in the next half hour that will resonate with the very core of these people, wherever they are, whatever the point of need is. God, there will be a kairos moment where something simple that I say is life-changing and transformational for them. In Jesus' name I pray, let the church of God say amen, amen, amen. Galatians chapter 6, verse 11 through 18. This is Paul writing to the church Listing the ingredients of Christianity. He says, See what large letters I use as I write to you with my own hand. First of all, uh, scholars believe he's writing in capital letters or large letters. Somehow he's emphasizing. Paul wants to make sure that the readers understand hey, I'm not dictating to my secretary. Like, this is me. What I'm about to say is of utmost importance. And so, verse 12. He says, Those who want to impress people by means of the flesh are trying to compel you to be circumcised. The only reason they do this is to avoid being persecuted for the cross of Christ. Not even those who are circumcised keep the law, yet they want you to be circumcised that they may boast about your circumcision in the flesh. May I never boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ through which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. Neither circumcision nor uncircumcision means anything. What counts is the new creation. Peace and mercy to all who follow this rule, to the Israel of God. From now on, let no one cause me trouble, for I bear on my body the marks of Jesus. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you, with your spirit, brothers and sisters. Amen. Point number one. The perfect Christian, the perfect, The perfect idea of being a Christian, this again is satire, which means it's a joke. Don't take it seriously. But it's amazing how often many of us, you and I, will take this next statement very, very literally. A perfect Christian conforms to man-made standards of the Christian faith. If you're trying to be the perfect Christian, which doesn't exist, but if you want to wear that mask, you will convince those around you that a perfect Christian will conform to the man-made standards of the Christian faith. Now, the perfect idea is not God's idea. Can I get an amen? God does not expect you and I to conform to man-made standards of Christianity. Thank God. Like, thank God we don't have to walk in legalism, and God isn't so concerned about our outward appearance and whether we're wearing makeup or how long our hair is or what kind of music we listen to, right? I mean, of course, he does care if we listen to Britney Spears. But other than that, he he doesn't care about the external things. He cares about the heart. I have three maybe statements here that I want you to write down real quick. Just out of the gate, I want to give you three points that reflect back on Galatians 6. The first one is this. Perfect Christians are more concerned with impressing others than embracing Jesus. Doesn't that sound exhausting? I am so thankful that I have an audience of one. I am so thankful that I don't live in this make-believe reality that I have to be perfect all the time and I have to impress you for me to feel worthy and feel like I'm a true Christian. Perfect Christians are more concerned with impressing others than embracing Jesus. We see that in verse 12. Those who want to impress people by means of the flesh are trying to compel you to be circumcised. The only reason they do this is to avoid being persecuted for the cross of Christ. In other words... They're trying to get you to get circumcised to fulfill this this outward feat that looks like you're following God. Because if on the outside I look like I'm following God, I'm not accountable for the stuff on the inside that really determines if I'm following God. It's so much easier. I said earlier it's exhausting to be a perfect Christian. It's really a lot of work. But it's a lot easier than picking up your cross and following Jesus. Here's what, I've, here's what I've learned, though, in, in my 44 years on life. I can try all day long to be the perfect Christian, but it's a lose-lose situation because God can't heal who I pretend to be. Point number two, perfect Christians think you're, everybody say, my Perfect Christians think your obedience will earn them points with God. Verse 13, not even those who are circumcised keep the law. In other words, the people who are circumcised and telling you to get circumcised, they're not even keeping the law. Yet they want you to be circumcised that they can boast about your circumcision. So they want to boast about your circumcision so they look better before God. You ever known the perfect Christian who has so much time on their hands to point out all of your faults and failures and flaws? It's as if their calling in life is to make you look more like Jesus, right? You ever—come on. Surely you know these people. It's like they got their life straight when they were seven years old, and now they've got all this time to fix all the world's issues. Perfect Christians— actually validate their relationship with Jesus by you doing what is right. How twisted is that? You you put their relationship with God in jeopardy when you mess up. Because if you're close to them and they're close to God, you should know better. If that's what being a perfect Christian looks like, I think I don't want it. Point number three, perfect Christians prefer to be a cathedral rather than a construction zone. Perfect Christians prefer to be a cathedral rather than a construction zone. Verse 15, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision means anything, Paul says. What counts is the new creation. If you look at the word creation, what it really is saying is building, a new structure, a work in progress. Like, it doesn't matter the works that have been done, are being done, or about to be done. Like, what is God building in you? Perfect Christians, they want to be a cathedral. They want to build a monument to the grandeur of their righteousness and holiness. But a person whose heart is bent towards the Lord, they don't care about building a monument to their success. I hope for the rest of my days until I die, that you will look at my life and say, man, he never fully got it all together. his life was a continuous construction zone. I didn't say mud pit, construction zone. With layer after layer, floor after floor, heights after heights, glory after glory. He never thought he arrived. He never got to a place that he was so confident in his own ability, so confident in who he was and what he was that he looked down on others. He was so focused on the gaze of Christ hoping and praying that the light of Christ would shine on him, that he was constantly in search for the dark areas of his soul. A perfect Christian doesn't care about work in progress. They really don't care. They'll accept that you're a work in progress, but they don't want you to know that they are. They want to be a cathedral with stained glass. So there's this thing going around, I think, for decades now, where if we want to wear a mask of being a perfect Christian, we do good things, right? Right? You ever, it's just like they do all the right things. They give to the poor. They, you know, promote on Facebook. Oh, I, I did this for this widow. Hashtag blessed. Hashtag humble, you know? <laughs> they let you know all that they're doing and, and they just, so they're so good. And you say, or, or even simple things like, oh, Michaela, great song. Oh, it's not me, it's the Lord. Well, I'm pretty sure your vocal cords had something to do with it because I've heard other people saying, said it was the Lord and I thought, tell the Lord to be quiet. <laughs> we try to do things so good because, you know, we, and let's let's be honest, I want to make the Lord famous in a good way. But there's a growing trend in our culture. I quite don't like it. It says that We can make God famous by being so bad. You know, I'm just so bad. God loves me anyway. That just shows how merciful and gracious he is. Look at all that I've done wrong, all I continue to do wrong. I'm not changing at all to reflect his image, but that's just how gracious God is. God doesn't really get glory from your continuous dysfunction. I'm afraid that Many try to display the grace of God by flaunting their rebellion towards his nature rather than surrender to his nature and will for our lives. There's two ways to look at this. Um, Maybe that of an orphan or or a rebellious nature. And you can kind of gauge. No no one wakes up in the morning and says, hey, I just want to be rebellious today, right? I mean, unless it's like with your diet and you're like, I want a pizza. You know, but... For the most part, you don't just wake up and say, hey, I think I'm gonna have an affair today. Hey, I think I'm just, you know, I'm gonna take all my mortgage money, I'm just gonna go um, buy buy a motorcycle. You you don't just wake up and be there. There is this developing of an orphan spirit, a, a rebellious heart that is beneath the surface long before that iceberg ever breaks the surface. There are things developing under the surface of the water. And so a rebellious heart will often say something like um, they'll acknowledge God's will, but they will embrace their sin by saying, God loves me even if I am blank. I want to change your thinking on this because we celebrate those words often, but I think we've not really unpacked them to see what it's saying. It is true that God loves us even if but it's often through a, a rebellious heart that we boast and we brag and we say, God loves me even if I am blank. It's the heart of surrender, the heart of a son and a daughter that would say something that acknowledges my sin, but embraces his will by saying, God loves me while I am becoming blank. You see the difference? One says, God is so great, he accepts me as I am Thank God he accepts us just as we are. God loves us enough to accept us as we are, but he loves you too much to let you stay that way. God loves me even if blank is much different than says, God loves me while I'm becoming blank. One is from a a state of apathy, complacency. One is from a state of faith and looking forward to the future. On my bathroom mirror, I've kind of taken over my corner of the bathroom with some postcards and, and sayings that I just I'm say every morning and every night. If I'm alone, I'll say them out loud because I believe that my body and my mind responds to my voice more than anyone else's voice. So if I'm alone, I will say all of these things out loud. If I'm not alone, I'll say them in my mind because I believe there's still power in my thoughts. But one of the statements uh, that I have that I'm getting down into my spirit, even now in this season of my life, it is this. The orphan and the son cannot coexist in the same heart. One of them has to die. Like every day of my life, twice a day in the morning and night, I want it to be so much a part of the fabric of who I am that any situation I face, any thought that I want to gravitate towards, any action or behavior or trend or addiction or pattern or any of that that I want to do, I want to know with every fiber of my being that I'm either stepping into the role of a son or I'm stepping into the role of an orphan. And guess what? In kingdom, I can't be this one day and this the next. One of them will live and one of them will die. The great thing is I get to choose which one lives and which one dies. The orphan and the son cannot live in the same heart. One of them has to die. I want to take you to Galatians 5. If you remember, uh, last week I asked a question. And before I ask that question again, I want to I take you to what Paul says in Galatians 5. If we back up a chapter, it says, um, you, my brothers and sisters, were called to be free. How many of you like freedom? Yes, you were called to be free. But, this is a big but, this is a big but in the Bible, but do not use your freedom "...to indulge the flesh, rather serve one another humbly in love. For the entire law is fulfilled in keeping this one command, love your neighbor as yourself. If you bite and devour each other, watch out, or you will be destroyed by each other. So I say, walk in the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the flesh desires what is contrary to the Spirit, and the Spirit what is contrary to the flesh. They are in conflict with each other, so that you are not to do whatever you want. But if you are led by the Spirit... You are not under the law. I want to go on to 19. It says all kinds of things that are dirty, filthy, awful, and hideous, okay? These are clear things in God's word that we are to avoid. Sexual immorality, impurity, debauchery, idolatry, witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and the like. That's a pretty comprehensive list. It goes on in verse 22. This is where things start to shift. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. I'm going to make a very bold declaration right now. And I'm going to say this. There is no sin that you have ever committed in your lifetime that did not result from one of these fruits of the Spirit not growing in your life. Every Sin that you can commit, did commit, are committing, or ever will commit, centers, has a root cause from a fruit of the Spirit that has not taken root in your relationship with Jesus Christ. So I asked you a question last week, and I'm going to ask it again for those that weren't here. Last week I said, how many of you have ever told God in some area or weakness of your life that you would never do it again? right? Whatever it was, you made some deal with God. God, I promise, if you just get me through this, I promise I will never, ever do it again. But you have done it again. How many of you? Last week, it was 100%. We have more saved people here, apparently. It was an Easter crowd. We expected. We expected that last week. Um, I've done it. i said, God, I will never, ever do this again. And then I found myself doing it again. I want to crack the code on this whole spiritual living, because I believe there is a way that you and I can actually grow to a place where we're not making false promises to God, where when we get something into our, our spirit, into our heart, into our mind, into our Our will, when we determine something, that suddenly all of heaven rushes around us to support that decision because it's in line with God's will. And when we say, I will never do this again, we actually don't do this again. I know I'm spitting a lot right now. I promise I'll never do it again. I'm going to spit no matter how much I promise. I know, I get it. We go through these cycles of false promises and then we get discouraged because we continue to see it happening over and over again. But what if there's a way to crack the code? What if we've been believing lies all of our life? What if we've not really stepped into the fullness and the depth and the breadth of what it means to be a co heir with Christ? I've got to show you three ingredients to this thing that I'm cooking on the stove. By themselves, the ingredients seem boring. I get it, but I've got, to, I've got to describe them to you. And then I'm going to pull it all together, and we're going to let the stove simmer, and you're going to start to smell the aroma of them together. Is that okay? Will you stay with me? All right. The first, thing the first ingredient that's going to help you and I Actually, transform into the image of Christ. It's this word, it's in your notes. It starts with an S. It's a fancy word, it's a churchy word. It's called sanctification. Sanctification. Sanctification is applied justification. I know it sounds fancy, but it's really simple if you think about it along these ways, these terms. Justification is when you say yes to Jesus, you are instantly righteous in a moment, 100% righteous. Not because of what you've done, not because you've changed your patterns, not because you're suddenly thinking the right thoughts, but because of what Jesus Christ did for you on the cross, you are instantly 100% justified. What does that mean? just as if I'd never done it, right? I think about what I did way back when, how ridiculous, what I did yesterday, how crazy. I ask forgiveness, I repent, I'm justified. It's just as if I'd never done it. You hold on to guilt and shame because you don't understand the 100% justification is instantaneous. You have been fed, you've been handed a bill of goods. You bought a bill of goods that says, I've got to somehow earn justification. I have to have good behavior for X number of time before God really forgets what I've done. That's not how justification works. When you ask forgiveness, you are immediately justified. Aren't, isn't that good news today? So when you truly repent and you're, you ask forgiveness, you can be confident that God has forgotten. He has placed your sin as far as the east is. From the West, you are instantaneously justified. However, sanctification is applied justification. Sanctification is something that we grow in. The moment that we're justified, we are free from the guilt and shame. Sanctification gets us free from the dysfunction of sin. Let me say that again. The focus of sanctification is that moment where we are healing from the dysfunctionality of sin. Just because you did something when you were 16, 17, 18, 22, 26, 28, whatever it is, you did something, you asked forgiveness, you're immediately justified. You've still got memories that you've got to unpack. You've still got regrets that you've got to wade through. There are still things that your brain has been hardwired and you think about things. That's called sanctification where you step from guilt and shame into glorious light. And it's a process. I reflect Him more day by day. In 1 John three twenty 23, 2-3, Dear friends, we are now children of God, and what we will be has not been made known. But we know that when Christ appears, we shall be like Him, for we shall see Him as He is. All who have this hope in Him purify themselves just as He is pure. In other words... Today, I'm not who I was yesterday. And today, I'm not who I'm going to be tomorrow. And tomorrow, I'm not who I'm going to be when I finally see Jesus face to face. There's a process, a journey that you and I are going through. We are becoming more and more like Christ. There there are some people who believe falsely in my opinion. They interpret the Word of God to say the moment you say yes to Jesus, that you no longer wrestle with sin, that you instantly reflect the nature and the heart of Christ. I disagree with that. I think you instantly have access to the heart and the mind of Christ, but there are still some shackles that you got to set yourself free from. There are still some patterns and behaviors and thought processes that you've got to set yourself free from. There's still trauma from your childhood. You don't even know how it's affecting you. But God knows, and when you open up your heart to the surgery table of the Holy Spirit, suddenly the things that have been impacting your life, it just happens differently, but it's a process. And it's okay to be in process. I may be in a different phase than you. You may be way further than I am, and that's okay. All I need to be concerned with is today I'm not who I was yesterday. And tomorrow there's hope that I'll be a better me than I am today. Sanctification. Can we at least agree? Can you agree with me that sanctification is a a journey and a process? Can Have I gotten you there theologically? Yes? If not, email me. I've got plenty more scripture. I've got nine pages of notes that I can't get to. Let me get to the second ingredient. The second ingredient is kind of like onion powder. You put it in everything, and you don't know why. Okay. You ever notice that everything calls for onion powder? Everything, hard-boiled egg, onion powder. All right. Um, so the next ingredient on your notes: spirit, hyphen, soul hyphen, Body. Hey, I'm gonna take 10 more minutes. We can wind that down. Please. Thanks, Chad. Give it up for Chad. Is he not awesome? I just feel bad for him playing. I'm not I'm not landing the plane yet, bro. Um I I have to leave off with you guys where I left off with the first service, so I, I gotta try to navigate this well. Um Spirit, soul, body. How many of you have tried to break apart, you know, well, the Trinity, for example. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. We think of maybe an egg. You've got the shell, the white part, the yellow part, right? We kind of attribute that to something that we can wrap our brain around. How many of you have ever tried to separate the parts of your personhood? Spirit, soul, body. How many? Come on. Am I the only one that thinks like that? Okay. Um, In the Christian realm theologians, they debate about this. This is actually pretty uh, whew, controversial. So if you're new to Christ, um, you, you can certainly check out on this because I want to geek out just for a moment. Is that all right, church, if I just geek out for a moment on this? And if you're new to Christ, it should be kind of interesting to be like, whoa, I didn't know church could, could go like this. Um, spirit, soul, and body. There are three perspectives that we see in church. Um, The first one is exactly the way it's written, spirit, soul, and body. That's called trichotomy. Trichotomy. So we have a spirit, we have a soul, we have a body. I grew up believing I I was a trichotomist. I believed that I had a spirit, I had a soul, and I had a body. I don't believe that anymore anymore. Um, in fact, most biblical scholars today would not agree with the statement. But how many of you grew up believing there was a spirit, a soul, and a body? Okay. And you can still believe that if you want to. This is um, not going to send you to hell if you're wrong or if I'm wrong. Uh, it's just, it's a good way to think about things. And it's so fundamental to the ingredient of how we're not going to keep circling around that same mountain. So I, I need you to understand this. Um, According to many trichotomists, believing that there are three, man's soul includes his intellect, his emotions, and his will. And they maintain that all people have such a soul and that different elements of their soul can either serve God or give way to sin. Right? We believe that our emotions, we can sin in our anger or our will. We can sin in our rebellion or disobedience. Um, A person's spirit, however, they believe is a different level. It's like somehow a bit holier, a little more pure than the soul is. Um, It's a higher faculty that only comes when a person becomes a Christian. It only becomes alive when a person becomes a Christian. Scripture does not support that one bit. Um, Every human that is ever born at conception has a soul slash spirit. Um, It doesn't just come alive whenever you accept Christ. It just comes in fellowship with Christ, when you say yes to Christ. So it comes alive in the fact of, hey, I'm in relationship, not, hey, I now have a spirit, okay? That's uh, what trichotomists believe, although that's wrong. Um, The other one, this is what I believe to be true and accurate, is you have two parts. We actually have two parts. It's spirit slash soul and body. And I'm going to prove that to you in scripture real quick. I'm going to have to fly quick over it, but you can email me for my sermon notes. I'll give it to you if you want. Um, Or you could read my book if it comes out. Anyway, um, some argue that the spirit is not separate, a separate part of man. It's the spirit and the soul. And that's exactly what I, and just by the way, listen, if you are already sitting there with arms crossed and you're like, ah, he's sacrilegious. He doesn't know what he's talking about. Maybe you're right. Maybe I don't know what I'm talking about. It doesn't really, at the end of the day, it's not something that you and I need to argue over. I just want to expand your thinking to a possibility, and then you'll pray about it and see that I'm right. (laughs) Maybe. There are some things that you and I have to agree on. We have to agree that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, that he died for our sins, he rose on the third day, and he's coming back to redeem his church, right? That's non-negotiable. We can't let go of that. We have to believe that together. There are other fluid things. This is one of those fluid things. Like, you, if you're wrong or I'm wrong, we're not going to hell over it, right? It's kind of like, if, I, if one of us says, um, hey, Jesus is the savior of the world, and the other says, Oprah is the savior of the world, one of us is definitely wrong, right? One of us gives eternal life. One of us gives a car, right? One of them gives a car. This is not one of those things. If you want to believe that you have a spirit and a soul and a body, great. But the truth is, <laughs> spirit and soul in Scripture is used interchangeably, OK? And I'll, I'll explain more about that, but let me go to the third, the third perspective that not so much evangelical Christians. You, won't, you would be hard-pressed to find evangelical Christian who believes this, but it's called monism, monism. Um, Monism is where we're all one entity. So our, our thoughts, our emotions, our will, our body, our spirit, everything is just one entity. When I die, that's it. There's nothing after this. I might get reincarnated to another. I don't believe this. They believe they might get reincarnated to another entity that is then all encompassing one thing. But when they die, they're dead. Right? You wouldn't find necessarily an evangelical Christian that believes that. If you do, Uh, there's a lot bigger problems going on in their mind than just this issue. Uh, But I believe this, and let me just give you a few reasons why I believe that there are two. I'm going to give you five quick reasons. You would think this is the whole meat of my sermon, but I'm, again, laying a very important and critical foundation for what I—the really good gold stuff that I want to share in two weeks. Number one, Scripture uses soul and spirit interchangeably. Interchangeably. In John 12, Jesus says, Now my soul— is troubled, whereas in a very similar context, just uh, one chapter, or I'm sorry, in uh, John 13, one chapter later, he says, I'm troubled in spirit. So one chapter, his soul is troubled, then he's troubled in spirit. He's using it interchangeably. Um, A trichotomist might argue that these passages are still treating the soul and spirit as different things, um, but that's not actually true. What we find all throughout Scripture um, is that, They're interchangeable. So it may in one point say the spirit is communing with God, the spirit is praying to God, the spirit is fellowshipping with God, but then in another scripture, the soul is communing with God, the soul is fellowshipping with God, the soul is praying to God. We cannot find a pattern in scripture where spirit is exclusively used for this context and soul is exclusively used for this context. You're not gonna find it. Point number two is when people die in scripture, it always says that their soul or their spirit departs. You will not find an instance of a properly translated text that says their soul and spirit departed. You're not going to find it, one or the other. Number three, man is said to either be body and soul or body and spirit. In scripture, when they describe the totality of your personhood, it's body and spirit, or body and soul, thereby implying that soul and spirit is the same. Jesus tells us not to fear those who can kill the body but cannot kill the soul, but that she, we should rather fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Here the word soul clearly refers to the part of the person that goes on living after the body dies, okay? Okay? So we see over and over and over that soul is the thing that lives, spirit is the thing that lives, and there's no differentiating between the two. This is so critical to make sure that we're using real onion powder, not generic onion powder, in our recipe. Okay, church, the next one. Um, The soul can sin or the spirit can sin. All throughout Scripture, we find that both the soul sins and the spirit sins. That will mess up somebody's theology who thinks that your spirit is pure and holy. And number five, the soul can do everything the spirit can, and the spirit can do everything the soul can. Spirits can experience emotion. Souls can experience emotion, according to Scripture. When Paul says your spirits are alive because of righteousness, he apparently means that we're alive to God, but he doesn't imply that our spirits were completely dead before Christ, only that we're living out fellowship with God. Why does it matter? This is a great little seminary course, Pastor, but who cares? I've got Chewies waiting. Let me tell you why it matters. If indeed it is true that we are dichotomists, that our spirit and soul is one in the same, the unseen portion of our personhood, and that is separate from our body. There are, there are two things. The first thing is just cool. Uh, no, no really significant thing other than it's cool. The first thing is, it gives me a real glimpse of heaven. It means that not just my spirit, some fuzzy-wuzzy hat-a-bear is going to float on a cloud somewhere, a spirit that I don't even know how to articulate. And let's face it, if, you, if you've thought you were a trichotomist all along, you've believed in the spirit, soul, and body, I bet you've never really been able to articulate the difference between a spirit and a soul. I bet you haven't, logically, other than with a feel, mamsy, pamsy feel, good words. It makes more sense that my spirit and my soul is the same. Because the Bible says I will be known in heaven as I'm known here. That means when I go to heaven, I'm taking with me all of my memories of you. I'm taking with me all of the times that we laughed together and we played together and we prayed together and we cried together. I'm taking, I'm taking with me what makes me me, my soul, my perspective, my faulty opinions, everything. And the moment I step into heaven with all of this soulish stuff that makes Trey Trey, and not just a spirit that looks like your spirit, I'm suddenly gonna see life from a whole new paradigm. I can't believe, I believe that for, well, I'm 44 now. I'm going to live to be 120. I can't believe, I believe that for 120 years. What was I thinking? That, That's the beauty of me stepping into heaven and seeing. hey, you see that? out oh, girl, that was my wife down there, y'all. That was my wife. I was married to her. Oh, those are my kids. Can you believe God gave me those people? I had to raise these Oh, that was my mom and dad. Can you believe how blessed I was to be in relationship? Oh, those were the people that were at my church, the exchange church, yeah. And, And we did all of this for the kingdom. I'm gonna carry all of that into heaven because my soul and my spirit will be there. Now, that's just a fun fact. The better fact is this. If we are in fact a dichotomy, where our spirit and our soul is one and the same, it's not a difference. You can call it a spirit. You can call it a soul. You can call it... Whatever You can call it a cantaloupe. Call it whatever you want. It's just the unseen part of who we are. If that is true, then when we draw close to Jesus, what we would call building and edifying our spirit, for those trichotomists in the room who still like that lingo and that language, when you would say something like, oh, I'm praying in the spirit because I'm building up and edifying my spirit man. If you're in fact dichotomist, you know what you're doing. You are rearranging the neural pathways in your physical body, in your brain. You are rearranging your body. You are causing your heart rate to function at a rate that it should. As you draw closer to Jesus Christ, you are quite literally on the operating table of heaven, and there is a transplant, and you are getting the mind of Christ. It matters. Because the enemy has confused us for so long. And when we're praying for breakthrough, we are like praying in the spirit and we're trying to build up our spirit man. our oh, spirit man is, is up here, but my mind is weak. My body is frail. If we see it all as one and the same, suddenly we don't have the excuse and we can't say stupid things like this. My spirit is strong, but I manipulate a lot. My spirit is strong, but I have a lot of fear. My spirit is strong, but I think negative thoughts. My spirit is strong, but I have little self-control. When we know it's one in the same and we are washing our mind and our physical spirit and soul and body with the word of God, it can't help but transform us into his image. Last ingredient and then I'm done. There's one more ingredient. I really love this one a lot. There are weights and sins. The Bible clearly distinguishes between weight and sin, weight that you carry and sin that you embrace. It may seem trivial in the moment, but when I turn the heat up and start to stir the pot, it's gonna make a little bit more sense. Things that slow your progress are the weights. They may not be sin, but if you carry the weights long enough, it will get you off course. Getting off course Is equivalent to sin. Hebrews 12 and 1 says, Wherefore, seeing we also are compassed about with such a great cloud of witness, witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which doth so easily beset us, and let us run with perseverance the race that is set before us. Why are weights important? Because some of us are circling that same mountain. God, I'll never do it again. And because we can identify that we've not stepped into sin, we've ignored the fact that we're carrying the weights. And the weights delay the progress. And the weights alter the trajectory of where you're headed, which ultimately results in sin. God, I'll never do blank again, but I did blank again. Here's the good news. I've added all these into the pot, turning up the heat. And what you start to smell can be simmered into three statements. Number one, sanctification and progress is not only possible, which is great news, but it's an indicator of submission to the Holy Spirit. That's so freeing because you feel like you've not had progress You don't have to worry about all the external things. Just look at your heart. You're not submitting to the Holy Spirit. Somewhere you're suppressing the Holy Spirit because we know that when the Holy Spirit is at work in our life, the fruit of the Spirit is developed on the branches of our heart and we produce the fruit in keeping with good works. Point number two, stinking thinking, Jesus shrinking. The more we know Jesus, the more we have The mind of Christ. If you've got stinking thinking, I guarantee you, your Jesus is shrinking. The bigger you make God in your mind and your perspective, the smaller your problems become. The less often your negativity arises. And point number three, there are precursors to sin. I call those weights. We can see it coming like an addict that is heading toward a relapse. There are flashing signs and exit ramps long before the crash. In this sentence, it's it's cheesy, but I made it up and I love it. I'm gonna say it anyway. You if you date the weight, you're kin to sin. If you date the weight, you're kin to sin. If you play around with the weights and you carry them and you date them and you court them and, and you give them a little kiss on the cheek, before long you're gonna be kin, you're gonna be related to sin. You date the weight, you're kin to sin. Ninety percent of all that we do, I'm wrapping up. I'm wrapping up. Are you with me still? I'm wrapping up. Let me just give you a little taste of what's coming in two weeks. I asked you the question of have you ever said I'll never do it again? And you have. I'm going to help you break that cycle in two weeks. This is the foundation that you absolutely had to have before I can give you the fun stuff in two weeks. I can't wait. It's going to be great. You've got to come back in two weeks. 90% of all of your behavior, sociologists will tell you, psychologists, behavioral psychologists will tell you, it all funnels down to one thing, habits. Habits. If you are doing something, if you are getting results in your life that you don't like, it's, it is because you have done things for enough time to create habits. You've created a system in your world perfectly designed to give you the output that you're currently getting. That's why we do what we don't want to do. And we say, God, I will never do it again. It's because you hate the outcome, but you haven't modified the system. And it's such a habit, you don't see it coming. You don't see the flashing lights. You don't see the exit ramps before the crash. You just end up there and you swear to God you will never do it again. But you do because your habits will always take you there because old habits cannot open new doors. Okay, I got to stop. I got to stop. Let me leave you with this. Did you know with EEGs and MRIs, I'm, I'm super into uh, neuroscience right now, and, and I don't know if you realize that neuroscience is just now identifying what Scripture has said for hundreds of generations. Did you know that they can find in the brain that people who pray a lot, their brain structures have changed biologically? It's not a kumbaya, sit in the moment, meditate. When they pray, in fact. They could do mris of all of our brain and we could see who the prayer warriors are simply by the makeup of your brain that's scary isn't it awesome i'm gonna help you in two weeks we're gonna we're gonna converge all of this we're gonna talk about neuroscience and how it backs up scripture and how there is a way of escape. The Bible says there is no temptation that has overcome you, that is not common to man, that he will not provide a way of escape. The reason you've not escaped is because you've never gone that way before. When the children of Israel were wandering the wilderness for 40 years, they wanted to see the promised land. And then Joshua steps on the scene in Joshua 3, and what does he say? His opening grand ceremony, he says to the people, hey guys, listen, I know where we're going. You've never been this way before. They found the promised land because they changed their habits. Your habits will change the way you talk, the way you think, what you see, what your hands do, and where your feet go. Come back in two weeks. We're out of time. Father, in Jesus' name, God, I thank you that your crazy love, your crazy love just does something to us. It gives us the opportunity, God, to step out of our patterns of defeat, the things that we have embraced, the things that we have said yes to, not realizing we had other options. Oh, God, I thank you that we're not going to go around that mountain again. God, I ask that you would stir in us. And as we sing this next song, God, stir in us this notion that we don't have to be defined by our habits, that we can create new habits, that we can find a new end, a new freedom to walk in. Paul said that the love of Christ constrains us. So God, we invite your love to do its work in our heart right now. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.